Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here, as always, with my friend, my colleague, my co-host, Ross Ferguson, academic advisor, master student, MDiv student? Uh, MTS, preaching and pastoral ministry, and an MDiv. Okay. And resident of the Pastoral Training Center, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> say. Your superlatives are as long as mine. You have lots of things my, going on. My wife often says, like, when people ask me what do I do, and I start giving the list of things I do, <laughs> it's like, you know, at some point you can just stop the list and, like, not add more to yeah, it. That's right. Um, it was funny. We were talking about something uh, just recently at the Pastoral Training Center, um, and, and just about various ways we can help in ministry. And I went home and I said to my wife, you know, I think I would be interested in that. And she went, and what are you going to drop off your list? It's like, <laughs> That's I a wise wife. I have to say, though, before we got onto this podcast, yeah. I said to you, you know, we're going to look at a few different things. I said, oof, some of these are heavy. And you went, yeah, but we'll do good. And I was like, <laughs> that is some self-confidence there. It's like, confidence in us, brother. Okay. I have confidence in us. <laughs> That the 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 two of us can figure it out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because it's all about us. Yeah. No. What? <laughs> this is taking a turn. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> should I come in thinking? Oh, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to answer these questions, yeah. and we should just record the podcast anyway. Or should I come in thinking? No, we can we can offer some some sound <laughs> counsel on this. Sure. <laughs> I think we're gonna do good. Good. <laughs> I mean, it's just me hoping and believing all things. Yeah. Walking in the light of First Corinthians thirteen. Isn't that a song like "Walking in the Light"? I feel like that's like, <laughs> like a like an old gospel know. chorus. You know what we haven't done in a while is Jared's beefs. We haven't done Jared's beefs. No, and I've got I've got a couple of beefs with our <laughs> listeners. Okay. So if you think I'm if you think I'm doing good, maybe I'm about to tank that. I'm okay. about to torpedo that. Two beefs. Number one, every week I ask for reviews. <laughs> I say, if you if you like the podcast, leave us a good review on Apple Podcast, and nobody does this. Maybe you no know, one likes it. That's why. That well, that's what I wonder. But the review, the the star ratings are good. Either they're they're not listening to me; they don't care what I say, or it's at the end of the podcast they stop listening. Once they realize, once they hear the words like "dear listener" or whatever, they're like they stop it. They move on to the next thing. Um, we need these reviews, and and you get something in return. I'll read it on the air. You get your review read, so you can be funny, you can be clever, you can be whatever. You can be insulting. Get leave us a bad review. I'll read that on there. So I just have a beef that they're not really responding. The other beef I have is this uh, week's mailbag. That that's what this episode is. Mm-hmm. Is mailbag. Every time we do a mailbag, I put on Facebook, Twitter, multiple places. Ross and I are recording. Send us your questions or topics. And usually we do pretty well. This time around, man, so chintzy, hardly anyone answers, and half of them are jokes. You're right, you know. They're not, they're not funny. Hey, you should talk about how you liked coming to my church. You know, just different things. And, <laughs> and then of the half that are legitimate questions, half of those are things that we covered. So I'm like, these people aren't even listening to the podcast. Could you talk about what ministry in Scotland is like? You know, like we just did a whole episode on that. Could you, you know. So I got a real beef with with these folks. So thank you for inviting Jared to your church to preach the word of God. <laughs> and for all those in the UK, uh, I love you dearly. I'm so glad that you're listening. And I think Jared's just off on one this morning. But. I guess so. I, yeah. I mean, it is a beef. I'll, I'll admit that. And it is early. Um, the review thing, as well. though, the two things that come to my mind, one... We kind of mock reviews when they come in. So maybe people don't want to be mocked. And two, no. I know you're like, give us a bad review. We'll read that out. I'm like, no, don't. Like, like this is <laughs> Well, I mean, if it's profane podcast. or something. But if it's like, you know, I would read a bad review if it's uh, polite. You know? if it, so what you're saying is just somebody leave us a review, but it needs to be polite. And Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Negative, positive, somewhere in between. Hey, leave us a review on whether you like Jared's beefs or not, or whether oh. you've been offended by what he just said this morning. I would love to know. I wonder if you're like speaking I just want to know the system's working. <laughs> well, your speaking engagement's tank <laughs> after this. It's like, oh, how did you like coming to you my know search? What? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Well, it is a mailbag. Let's open up. Here mm. are the kind, precious souls who did submit legitimate questions mm. And um, there's some pretty deep stuff in here, some substantive questions here. We're going to start off with uh, Bob's question. This is Bob from Twitter. He says, given a congregational decision-making paradigm, 
<laughs> which is a long way of saying, given the congregationalism or congregational church, do you need to communicate with the congregation when, if, when or if your secondary and tertiary convictions change, especially when those shifts may cause changes which lead your church away from denominational ties? <laughs> if so, how? I, there's, there's a story behind this. Yes. There's something specific behind this. Um, I'll start and just that I find it interesting to qualify. It's like if your secondary and tertiary convictions change. Well, these are really two different categories mm-hmm. in theological triage. I would say if your secondary convictions change, this is probably something that you need to communicate to your church. Less urgently tertiary convictions, but then he qualifies it to say these shifts could cause changes that lead your church away from denominational ties. Which is secondary, not tertiary. Yeah, well, secondary or tertiary, if it would have that ramification, yes, you need to communicate that to your church. Yeah, I'm I'm a yes as well. I might be a little bit further of a yes than you okay. uh, from what you're saying. I, I'm a big believer in just letting your church know you know, hey, we're we're having a conversation as an eldership about oh, this. Sure. It's it's not we're not thinking it's a major shift, but we're we're just re-looking at it. It doesn't mean we're changing. It just means that we're having a good conversation about it right now. If you have any input, let us know. And um, maybe you don't want to do that, you know, week one. But you know, I'm thinking what would be a tertiary thing. You know, it could be you know just a conviction how how you do worship and um, whether you need to pull back a little bit and do more voices only rather than instruments all these sorts of things yeah I, i'm a big believer in just let the church know it's a kind of uh, if we want our church to be mature in its responses then we also need to be mature in giving them the information so i'm a, i'm very much a yes especially if it means a de- denominational change yeah that's the thing that, that stands out to me um but if it's if it's just hey we're having a conversation about this we're researching it again we did this in my last church we just took a subject we wanted to just chat a little bit deeper we actually landed at the exact same place as we were before but i think it's just good to let churches know like this is what we're talking about because we shouldn't just assume that every member that's there knows why we do that thing. Yeah. And um, because they may, in our own church, we've had what, 30, 40, 50 members in the last, new members in the last year or something crazy. Again, they probably don't know how we got to the conclusion that we got to. So I think just letting people know and openness to that also give an avenue for conversation. So if you're saying, hey, we're talking about this, have an email address, a pastor, somebody that can say, if you've got any strong views, let us know. But, you know, to be clear, this is not us changing. This is us having a conversation. It may lead to change, may lead to nothing. But I, I'm I probably lean more to the bring the church on board board early uh, rather than late. Yeah. Well, and again, so let's say I mean I, I'm just having to imagine scenarios mm. here. But if it's a secondary issue that's connected to a denominational tie, so imagine you affirm believers' baptism and. That's a part of being a, a part of yeah. a Baptist denomination, yeah. right? If you have an elder who's like, I th- I'm thinking infant baptism may be a thing. Yes, that should be communicated that yeah. you're actually struggling in, in that area or sorting through that. That's a really significant thing. On a tertiary level, if it's something that has, I mean, I don't know, say you're part of a denomination that's explicitly dispensationalist or something, and you're sorting through your eschatology and you think you're about to move away from dispensationalism. Yeah. And of course that's going to have ramifications. You're pastoring a church that's a part of a dispensationalist denomination. You need to communicate that. Yeah. If it's something that, you know, people have joined the church under the agreement that we are a Baptist church or a whatever church, if you are having some, some shifts in your thinking or in your convictions, that would potentially lead your church away from that denomination. And it doesn't mean that your church wouldn't want to go with you, wouldn't want to leave that denomination or move away from certain denominational connections. But you need to communicate, you need to be transparent in this in this sorting so that, yeah, people can weigh in, yeah. but so that they're not ambushed by some decision that's made. And um, especially, as you said, Bob, this is a congregational yeah. church. It's it's not a top-down the pastors are making the decisions about what we do and don't do. The The church has to make these decisions together, and they need all the information. He does before. ask how, and uh, yeah. I would counsel that there's there's lots of ways that you can communicate to your church, but in something like this, in person and your voice. 
I think it's really important, even just to get the the tone. You to know, a members meeting yeah, or you're, something. You're yeah. kind of saying, "Hey, we're looking into this. Uh, we're not saying anything's changing, but we, we've decided to just take a good study on this." Uh, you might see some blog posts or articles or emails come out about it. Just know that this is where it's coming from. We're having that conversation. If you just fling out an email to your church to say, "Hey, by the way, we're having a conversation about this," those emails can be read very differently and disengages your church. So just add a members meeting, float it, float it early so that people know about it. And then, you know, back it up with details. I think this is one of the mistakes we often make is we say, hey, we're having this conversation. And then two years down the road, somebody says, where did we get on that? Yeah, you know, go? if you're going to communicate to your church from the beginning all the way through to the end. All right, here's Daniel on Facebook. Daniel says, what are some good practices when handing off a ministry you've been a part of building from the ground up to a new generation? How do you effectively and lovingly get out of their way while also helping guide them in the next steps of the ministry? Mm. It's a great question. I love the it's, heart behind the question, honestly. Question. We just talked about this at our last residency meeting, didn't we, about yeah. passing the baton yeah. and not waiting too late yeah. to start thinking through how do I raise up and equip and pass on mm. the ministry to the next generation? Yeah. Think about uh, buying a house. When you buy a house, you go in and you want to make some changes to the house. Maybe the owners before had put in a new kitchen, a new bathroom, and they can't think of doing it again. They, they spent all that money on it. It looks good to them. It still functions. A few things are wrong with it, but they put it in. So when you buy that house, you walk in, the first thing you go is, man, this kitchen's kind of old. I, I'm going to tear it out and put it, put it back in together. And the reality is always going to be a kitchen, but it's going to look different. And the new owners have to, have to come in and do that. And the old owners have to leave because they can't dream of what they had uh, was was destroyed. We had that. We sold the house and uh, immediately uh, the couple painted everything. We're like, hang on, we, we painted it like four months ago. And I think that's <laughs> yeah. church ministry sometimes is that um, growth curves, the way they tend to work is that you will build something. But to get to the next section, the next uh, era, the next time, you often have to break some of that down, even you know, knock a wall down or two. And my question for somebody that's, that's built of a, a church is, are you ready, honestly, like look inside yourself? Mm, no, don't do that. Just, just sit there and think about before God, are you ready for someone to take a sledgehammer to something that you've built because they know <laughs> yeah. that God is leading them? If we're honest, we would all struggle with that in terms of just the, the the love of what we've built. So for me, it's a yes, hand it over to the right people that God has led and yes, get out of the way because actually just because they're going to do it differently doesn't necessarily mean it's damaging to what you've done. Yeah, I'm thinking even in terms of, okay, so the, the impact on the congregation or on the church itself of this change. So you want to minimize as much of the sledgehammer effect as, as possible. Maybe, you know, you bring them in, you let them change out the fixtures, right? And then sometimes goes by. I'm thinking you work incrementally. Succession is ideally... And not you can't always do this, but ideally the succession plan has an incremental aspect to it. Where if you know, say I'm a pastor, and we've got somebody who's going to succeed me in the in, in the pastorate that we're hiring from within, our people aren't used to that person preaching every single week. They're used to my voice every single week. They're not used to this person calling some of the shots. So they're used to me calling all the shots. Well, slowly over time, I'm going to increase the reps that my successor has in preaching. Yeah. So people become accustomed to his voice. It's not as jarring. You know, he's doing it once every five weeks or whatever. And then I just slowly increase that. You begin to hand him more authority and responsibility. I know Daniel, I don't know if he's thinking in terms of like worship band. So maybe even thinking on, on that level, if you're going to change beloved worship leaders or something. Yeah. You just increase the exposure so that people become accustomed to the person. I also just think if you're going to give someone responsibility, you give them authority with that responsibility. Yeah. So you're not micromanaging. Uh, maybe this comes into the, to the sledgehammer thing. I don't know. But you uh, you don't swoop in whenever someone does something yeah. different than you would. You give them freedom maybe even to make some mistakes because if you're actually handing the ministry to them, you really want to be handling the ministry to them and not sort of yeah. like, well, as long as you do things my way or as long as you're not going to. And I think 
I would get to you on that until you get to the kind of 50-50 point. So maybe you've given them 20% of the ministry, 30% yeah. of the ministry. When you get to 50-50, it is confusing for the church uh, as in who who's leading this, who's not. Uh, I, I can't yeah. step up fully because I know that's not my role yet. I feel like there's still always going to be that moment where you're just like, I'm out. You're the guy. But what if you're and, communicating to them? Yeah, like, I know. mean, I, I'm thinking of a very particular situation in my mind of, of just a church and, and they're doing the kind of slower approach in terms of yeah. that change. Um, and, I, and I think it's good in the sense of it gets used to it. There's not massive shifts in ministry, but there's still going to be that moment where you're kind of like, I actually need to step back and, and you need to do this. And to be honest, I know that the second you take full charge, things are going to change. Yeah, it's going to change. And I think... I, I guess I personally lean more to the wards. Hey, if you've got a guy and he's ready for it, step out. Be an advisor, but just step out. Let him run it. And I think you would lean a little bit more to the kind of slower approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I think, just think that necessary. way about change in general. Yeah. I just think moving more slowly helps the congregation absorb the change better, acclimates them to the change better. You're still, anytime, I mean, we've been talking through this, you know, our church is searching for a new lead pastor. and we've just have to kind of remind ourselves, like it doesn't matter who's in that role yeah. in every church, the dynamic, I mean, it's, it's different church to church, but people leave yes. because there's an expectation of who this person's going to be or yeah. what that's going to be like. And they're disappointed that, and this is, it doesn't matter. I mean, it could be anybody. And so people leave when a new guy comes in, but people come when a new guy comes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it just always happens. And so I just think the change, if you can try to minimize it as much yeah. as possible, knowing that you can't avoid it entirely, if you could minimize it by trying to bring the church mm-hmm. along. Um, I mean, I, I do know. see that. I just, I guess I lean a little bit more to, I think that slow change is also frustrating. As much as the quick yeah. change, I think the slow change can be frustrating of just... Well, it can be frustrating for the person coming in, for yeah. sure. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to yeah, go, yeah. let me go. So I, yeah. I think the counsel for, for Daniel is... I think if if your tendency is to go fast, slow it down. If your tendency is to go slow, maybe speed it up a little bit. Okay. But I think generally speaking, you you want to be lovingly slowly stepping back at, at the minimum and advising as you go. But but in the full knowledge, the individual might change your ministry completely. Yeah. And you kind of need to be okay with that. Yeah, the advising as you go part that you just said, I think is really important. I mean, he's asking, how do you get out of their way while also helping guide them? I, I mean, I think in a way this sort of answers the question. Like you're not answering the questions for them. Mm-hmm. You're not making the decisions for them. You're letting them figure it out yeah. while remaining a consultant. Like, hey, I'm available if you need help or just encouragement or you yeah. want to talk through process, through a conversation. I'm a resource for you. Yeah. And if you want me to weigh in, I'm here and I'm always happy to help. To be an encouragement to them yeah. and a cheerleader for them, I think is good. But to let them, again, if you're giving them responsibility, give them the authority that comes with that. Don't second-guess them, yeah. undermine them, or micromanage them either. I think that's um, a either. great piece of advice. I'm a resource to you. I, I, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm not yeah. your boss. I'm not your colleague. I'm your resource. Off you go, and I'm here to help. Yeah. Here's Phil on Twitter. This question seems pretty easy to me. I don't know if I'm just missing something, but Phil says, how do pastors and ministry leaders balance the need to get away to pray or study with shepherding? For instance, can I toggle do not disturb on my iPhone or is accessibility part of the work? And the same goes for open or closed office doors. Phil's asking, do I need to be available 24-7? No. No. <laughs> I mean, that's Jesus's. Only Jesus's phone should be on. <laughs> so the, the reality is the life we live now, people can get communicate with you in so many different ways. Uh, When I would take breaks, I would say to my church, and I'm being fundamentally, foundationally, convictionally serious, unless someone has died or is close to death, do not contact me. Mm. And invariably people would send emails and they would say things like, get to this when you come back. And what I learned was actually, I can't just say them, do not contact me. I need to not look at this stuff. Um, So we would go away and I would switch everything off for Mm. for holidays. I would have a kind of more prayer study day myself on Tuesdays. That's my norm. And again, I would close the door in my office. I would try to avoid responding to emails. And if anybody was a bit kind of uppity and frustrated, I would just simply say, emails, texts, and phone calls don't always need an immediate response. Yeah. Yeah. 
and if anything, you want to train your church that you won't give an immediate response because you want to just take that moment to pray about it. And if your church is aware that you're going to take that moment to pray about something or to figure something out, they won't rush to an immediate response. For me, just even the tone of, he says, can I toggle? So it's almost a permission. I would say uh, this sounds like somebody that's really struggling with that. And if it's permission you need, I'm giving you permission. <laughs> right, if if right. it's advice you need, honestly, if you're struggling to toggle to the don't don't disturb me right now, either your church is lifting you too high or you're lifting yourself too high, one or the other. And, yeah. and the response to that is toggle it off and spend time in prayer and study. It's only going to serve your ministry better. The negatives that come from that are actually teaching your church. Yeah, there's a an issue of potential codependency here, and it could go one way or the other, or it could be both ways. You know, you feel so much that your church is dependent on you that you don't feel, like you said, you know, I don't have permission, even if it's not a verbal thing. I don't feel like I can turn, you know, close my door. I don't feel like I can say for the next three hours, I'm just reading and, and praying. I don't feel like I can in the evenings turn my phone off or put my phone in the bedroom and not look at it, you know, because the church's expectation is that I'm the 7-Eleven pastor. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm open, you know, 24 hours a day. Well, that's an issue of them seeing the pastor as some kind of functional messiah in yeah. some way. Like, oh, Jesus is available to you 24-7. Your pastor is a finite person with mm-hmm. finite resources. He needs to rest. He has a family. He's got the same capacity that anybody else does. Plus, he's carrying the the responsibility of the church. So yeah. there's a, there's an added you know burden there. But it could be the other way as well. Maybe the church really isn't doing that. No. Maybe you m- maybe there's outside members, but yeah. the pastor loves being needed or the yeah. feeling of being needed, and he himself has a, a kind of codependency issue of like, I love the rush of yep. being the one who gets the emergency call and the one who's being available. I feel like I want to be a functional Messiah for my people, and and I'll I'll die the martyr's death, yeah. you know, in, in in doing this. Either way, there really needs to be some straight talk, mm-hmm. um, gentle but straight talk. Uh, if it's to yourself, less gentle, but straight talk nonetheless. Yeah. Either way, to say this is just not healthy. Don't be super restrictive. So it's like if if any church member sees me on Monday, I'm going to run a mile or I'm going to do like <laughs> right. three hours on Thursday night of study time. And if a church member comes around, I'm going to ignore it. Like that's not what we're saying. We're saying, you know, it's it's healthy to say. And I, I used to do this in my last church. Um, I would have what I call thinking time, not just praying time, but thinking time where I would switch the phone off, switch the computer off, just sit at my desk, have a, a blank pad of paper and just say, okay, God, what do you want to say to me right now? Like, what what am I doing wrong? What am I doing right? Where do you want us to go? And often those were just moments of clarity. And it's not that I shut the church out. It's that I just said, right now, that is not the most important thing. I know that God needs yeah. me to spend time, not needs me, but I need to spend time with him. So yeah, I would just really encourage you, if you're struggling with this, the whole day idea, the whole vacation idea, just take a couple of hours in your week. Start there. You know, Thursday nights, I'm going to take a couple hours for for prayer and study. No one can contact me. Start there and, and see how that helps. Yeah, I mean, to be at your best with people when you are on these phone calls or in these meetings, you need to have time when you're not on phone calls or in yeah. meetings to be able to sort of store up. I know that's true for me. and I'm sure that's mm-hmm. true for yeah, for lots of guys as well. Uh, okay, Ben on Facebook says, I'm not sure if you've mentioned this on the podcast before. Thank you, Ben, for at least acknowledging that sometimes people ask questions that we have well rehearsed. But this question I don't think we've answered before. Maybe vaguely about. Mm. In contrast to the episode on being a Christian in the workplace, a recent episode we talked about being a Christian in a secular environment, how do you be a Christian in seminary? Which I thought maybe meant a particular thing, but this is sort of what Ben means. He says, how do you meet and evangelize non-believers when your living space, school, and work are all on a seminary campus? And really, this question is not dissimilar to just ministry in general. Yeah. How do you be a Christian as a pastor? Yeah. <laughs> if, if if what you mean is you're interacting with, uh, with believers 99% of the time, how do you be a Christian in the world mm. when you're in a Christian environment all the time. Yeah, I think it's also leading into our evangelism podcast we did as well. Yeah, Really what Ben, uh, I know Ben, so I'm, I'm glad that he's asked a question. Really what Ben's asking is how do I get out of the Christian bubble? That, yeah. that bubble of I live, eat, 
pray, sleep, study, work in a Christian environment. So how how do I how do I get out of that? And and here would be my simple response: You need to get out of it. <laughs> you know, you need to actually get off campus. And whether you're single, married, family, you, you need to be active in the life off campus as well. I, I think two things I would say is one: being gospel centered and and being focused on the gospel doesn't mean that has to be always for non-Christians. There is plenty of people on this campus that are struggling with doubts and, and, and you know, really needing someone to oh, come yeah. alongside them. That's a good them. point. So I think one aspect then is, is to be looking at the people around you. How can you encourage them, lead them to the gospel, speak the gospel into their lives? Now, that doesn't scratch the itch, if you will, of the non-Christian outreach, but it's, it's, it's getting to the point of living a gospel-centered life wherever you are. In terms of getting to the evangelism side, I think uh, a long time ago, we did a podcast about, I think it was a mailbag struggling with sin or something like that. And we said, don't spend your time in your apartment in the dark hours of night, get out and go to things. Now, really easy to do that on campus to go to events, but maybe ask a friend, hey, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to go to a meal? We're going to go and see a movie like we recently did ourselves, you know, get, get where to be in the world, but not off the world. Key thing is to be in the world. You need to go out. Yeah. And just go out with a gospel mindset. And I remember speaking to a lady in Lowe's just at, at, at the till and just kind of speaking to her about the gospel. You do have Freddy's, you know, I think a little bit easier for families because you're going to go out anyway as a family. But I think as a single or a young guy on, on campus, I think you need to think about ways of how to get out. Um, even in terms of routine, going to the same yes. you know, grocery store uh, once a week, all that sort of thing. And just trying to actively actively leave the Christian bubble with the beauty of knowing you get to come back to the Christian bubble. So you have like a safety net to come back to. So if anything, that should lead you to be even more bold because if it goes really badly, you know, you can come back and there's hundreds of brothers and sisters here to encourage you. Well, on that note, so a a couple of things, I think the intentionality, right? You you have to make this a point. It's not just going to accidentally happen. You know, you can share the gospel along the way, but I think one thing you could do is to say, one day a week, I'm going to do my study at Starbucks or, you know, whatever, coffee shop or something, and I'm going to be a regular there. So if I'm not there multiple times a week, I'm there the same time every week doing my study. And being intentionally open there, Mm -hmm. one of the, you know, the downsides of the third place culture, I think, right now is that it's people who all go to the third place and we're alone together. We put on the headphones and we... So we're not really open to what's going on conversationally or whatever. We're we're kind of isolated even in public. But, you know, maybe being open. Mm -hmm. I also think, gosh, there's, I think there's an inspiration to not going alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason Jesus sent his disciples out by twos. And is there a safety net, so to speak, in taking a brother with you? And both of you being open to being able to share the gospel, have conversations, but being a regular somewhere yeah. and just being intentional. Like this isn't going to happen, you know, passively. Yeah. You have to say, if I want to reach people for Jesus and I want that to be a major feature of my life, you've got to be where people yeah. need Jesus and you have to be not sort of cloistered in that yeah. environment. It doesn't mean, you know, your very first meeting, you're going to be able to, you know, share the plan of salvation with somebody. But over time, as yeah. familiarity opens up more conversational doors, relational doors. And I think especially if you're able to take somebody with you, um, this can be a part of the yeah. routine that that's conducive to these things. And also just engage with others with what you're doing. So I went to Starbucks recently. I was actually writing a paper for you for oh, our pastoral training center. Excellent. And it was there about the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb. And I just said to someone, I was at Starbucks and I just said, uh, as I was waiting for my hot chocolate because I don't drink coffee. Um, <laughs> so I just asked them, hey, I'm writing a paper about kind of domineering leadership styles. Um, what would you deem as a domineering leader? Like if you if you were to name a name in society now and why do you think they're domineering? And then they, they answered it and the guy just went, oh, so what was the paper for? And I was like, well, it's actually for kind of pastoral training for, for being a church minister. And you could see their faces kind of going, Oh, uh, but but that's <laughs> yeah. that's kind yeah. of what I'm talking about, Ben. Is if you've yeah. got a paper, if you're writing on something, go to Starbucks, go somewhere, order something, and say, "Hey, just just a quick note here. I'm writing a paper for college. Can I just ask you a quick question? Because I'm kind of working through this. Yeah. What do you think about this? Maybe you're doing apologetics. You know, what do you think the meaning of life is? No, it's a heavy question, but you know, what what do you right. think? 
I think just bringing your Christian bubble life, so to speak, into the world is, a, is actually a lot easier than you think it is. Mm. Just have to have that three seconds of boldness to, yeah. to, to do it. That's good. Okay, here comes maybe the, the heaviest question. I thought this was the most complex <laughs> yeah. question, yeah. but we'll see. This comes from a pastor uh, via direct message. Um, he's asking us, can you share your experiences with handling guys who struggle with online pornography, particularly how you've encouraged or not encouraged them to talk to their wives about it? He says, for example, in the last few years, I've had a few guys in our church soberly admit their porn addiction to their wives. By God's grace, it's generally gone well for these couples. However, while I applaud their desire to walk in the light with their wives, what have been some circumstances that have led you to not encourage a guy to talk to his wife about this struggle? And a problem for some of these guys seems to be that it opens the door for a wife to be constantly wondering if he's looking at porn, even when the guy has good accountability. This often seems like a recipe for creating a culture of fear and insecurity for the wife especially if the guy continues to periodically fall into temptation. So I had to sort of cliff notes the mm. question. It's, do you always counsel a husband who's struggling with pornography to tell his wife? If not, when do you not? If so, when do you do, et cetera? It's, <laughs> it's not as a simple yes or no answer, to be honest, that, okay. that I find. So I think, I think initially... So I think we have to separate two things here. A problem with an addiction. Yeah, the word addiction and, is pretty specific. And I've looked once. You know, I, and I'm not saying that you hide things from your wife. I'm saying that like, what are we talking about here? And, and this question very much, as you're saying, is this is a sustained sinful issue in an individual's life. I think in the first instance, I want to say yes. And, and I have actually counseled guys to be open with their wives. And, and just to be clear on this, I've also counseled wives to be open with their husbands. I've had two situations that come to my mind where actually the wife was the one that was struggling with okay. it. So, so just to be clear, this is this is a both side issue. Um, and I have counseled them to talk to, to their spouses about it. And the answer is also no, in the sense of your wife or your husband does not need to know every single time a thought comes into your mind, every single time that the temptation was there, every single time that, you know, you opened your phone, you saw an image and quickly switched it off, you know, that they don't need to know every single time. So I think there is, a, I, I, I like think about it in every type of sin. You know, I you know, admit at a time in my life, I, I struggled a lot with speeding in my car. Do I then go home and tell my wife every single time I've gone over the speed limit? No. But do I say I'm still feeling like it's still a battle? Y yes. So I think it's not quite a straight yes or no answer. I think there are times where, it might be better to go to an accountability partner to say, man, that thought came into my head and I had to battle hard um, to not do it. To go back to your wife every single time for that one, I, I think is a burden that may not need to, to be carried by her at every thought. I don't know. I, I, I definitely struggle with the second half of this answer. The first half, I think, is, is the yes. What I struggle with is how to counsel people ongoing with this issue. Yeah, on one level, it's the it's the question of like do you confess every single sin to your wife i don't confess my every single sin to anyone except jesus yes. and i'm sure i miss plenty of sins in confessing yeah. to him as well um so this isn't about like your wife is going to be the you know the priest confessor for yeah. you so you have to take every thought captive to the obedience of your wife yeah and so on one level i want to allow for the possibility of an isolated instance mm -hmm. I can imagine if a guy came to me and said, I looked at porn last night, I would ask him a series of questions. Yeah. When was the last time you did this? How often do you do this? If he said, I haven't looked at porn in five years yeah. and I did last night, I'm going to keep tabs on him. Yeah. I may not. I'm not saying that I wouldn't tell him to, that he needs to confess that to his wife. But if it's an isolated incident, mm -hmm. I might not say, you need to go tell your wife. Yeah. But the context that this pastor is saying, he uses the word addiction. He talks about yeah. periodically falling into temptation. The concern is a guy who struggles in this area and the impact of that upon uh, his, you know, a guy's wife, um, her emotional well-being, her sense of security, those sorts of things. 
I think even knowing that, if a guy is struggling in this area, his wife needs to know yeah. this struggle because it's not quite the same as I struggle with going over the speed limit. This is yeah. an area of marital fidelity yeah. and, and, and sexual purity that directly connects to the marriage. So a couple of things. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of you need to go tell your wife mm-hmm. and we're just going to let her figure out how, how she's going to handle yeah. this. Yeah, if did. I'm counseling you— I want to make sure, and I know your wife is struggling with this. Like she's really battling insecurity out of this. She's really battling, um, you know, inferiority complex. She's really battling trust, all those sorts of things. There needs to be counseling for her. Someone needs to come alongside her, disciple her well, counsel her well. She needs to um, have support in in this area um, at the same time. And I also just think, brother, that, for some guy, I mean, this isn't about, um, you know, trying to make light of what a wife is going through. But for some guys, they don't, they need to feel the weight of this on their wife yes. to even experience victory in this area. Yeah. If if their wife is somewhat not clued into this, isn't feeling the weight of betrayal, isn't yeah. feeling the weight of hurt, then the husband, um, I think, doesn't have all the resources he needs to understand the weight of his sin. Yeah. And, and I think that's, so I think this is why I'm struggling a little bit with the question is that the damage to the guy is clear as in that's what we're seeing here is that there is significant damage in, in his faith, but the response of maybe it's best not to tell his wife because of the damage that it's doing to his wife or because she'll live in fear. The reality is though that they're damaging if they don't tell right, her. Exactly. So I think you're you're picking between two dangers and I would rather the danger of the wife knowing and struggling with fear, anxiety, and not feeling worthy, and then actually as pastors and as as church leaders really helping that, especially women of the church coming alongside her, I would far rather than that, than this kind of self-destructive, yeah. the marriage is imploding, but she's just not even aware. Um, so I think the, the note that I'm struggling with here is it, it almost feels, and I don't think this is the premise of the question, but it almost feels like, to protect the wife from all the emotions she will feel best not to say when actually to protect the marriage, right. the best thing is to say and then assist in the, the finding victory over the addiction and also in the caring for, for, for the wife. And there's plenty, I agree with them, plenty of instances where people have opened up and it's gone well. I think there's plenty of instances where they've opened up and it's not gone well, but I don't think doing the law of averages on this means that you wait to not telling. I, I think the key thing though is this should not just be a couple that's left left to themselves to figure things out. We, we've, yeah. if, if we're going to marry a couple before God in a church, then we need to also be able to be willing to sustain, help sustain that marriage and come alongside them. Um, for me though, uh, this particular subject just has so much kind of judgment on it in terms of just how we treat people with this. Um, and I think, I think, having it out in the open and having a gentle heart as a pastor, as a leader, uh, a gentle yet a heart seeking conviction over this sin is really key. We talked about this just recently. How do you be a gentle individual at the same time, decisive, decisive to say that this sin is wrong. It needs to be dealt with. You need to tell your wife and gentle along the lines of, I'm going to walk with you on this. And you know, my wife or these elders wives are going to step in and help your wife through it. And that kind of together, we're going to help you rather than, don't tell your wife because it might blow up. Well, it kind of already is blowing up. Yeah. You know, I wonder if on some level the wife's feeling about this is part of the husband's, or, I mean, or, or as you said, I guess it could, could go the other way. The spouse's struggle with this confession is part of what helps the the sinner, the mm-hmm. sinful, you know, the offending spouse grapple with the weight of their sin. And I wonder if this particular sin itself is so pervasive and so accessible. I'm not trying to say it's it's not the unpardonable sin by any stretch. And it's so common that we need to, in some ways, destigmatize, not sin, but just this particular sin so that people will confess more and deal with it more, you know, talk about it more freely and confessionally. But it's become so common that it's sort of like, we minimize, we need to feel the weight of it. I'm just thinking, you know, Matthew chapter five, where Jesus equates the impact, at least, or at least the guilt of lust with the guilt of adultery. Yeah. The sins may not be equivalent in themselves, but the impact is the same. You stand guilty before a holy God. 
and if you have lusted after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. Mm-hmm. If someone were to come and say, I've never cheated on my spouse before in my life. Man, last night I slept with somebody. You know, at, I was at my hotel. I'm, it's not an affair. It's just a one-time thing. Yeah. Would we say, well, if it's just a one-time thing, you don't need to tell. No, of course yeah. we would say, man, your spouse needs to know about this. Yeah. You, this is something you need to confess to them. You've been unfaithful to them. So again, not saying that looking at porn one time is the same thing as sleeping with somebody, but the impulse to hide it, mm-hmm. does that minimize? I, I fear that still minimizes and fails to grapple with the weight of of the sin. So again, I wouldn't say that every single thing needs to be confessed if it's an isolated thing. But I also just want to hesitate and say hiding an unfaithfulness like this, I have more questions about that and maybe more concerns about about that. It really needs to be, um, we we, we don't need to treat this sin Mm. as if it's, well, I mean, it's just, this is just a guy's sin and, you know, the wife doesn't necessarily need to know about all that. Yeah. I, I I think I agree with that. And I think just the only other thing I would add is because of the potential of a marriage to completely implode with this, it needs to be handled from a leadership or church leadership perspective with great gentleness. And our aim is not just that he stops sinning in this way or that their marriage can be good. Our aim is to gently, lovingly, mercifully walk them back towards Christ. Yeah. And to see a life on fire for Christ, really, truly, that's where their their attention and focus is. And I think we have historically, as a church wide, on this subject, can often just go way over the top. And I'm not saying don't hold the weight of the sin. Yeah. I'm saying remember you're just as broken as that guy, and kind of saying you know let let's take you to Christ because he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And yeah. I think yeah. Just caution on gentleness as you go through this. Be open, confess, caution on gentleness. Yeah, I wonder, too, if we should just pause for a moment. And, I mean, because this is so common, undoubtedly there are people listening who yeah. this is their struggle. Yes. Or there's a spouse listening that this is their spouse's <laughs> struggle, and they're dealing with insecurity and and fear and feelings of inf- inferiority or in some way, mm-hmm. like, I can't compare to what he's looking at on the screen. Just a you know second of encouragement for you if this is your spouse's ongoing struggle and you are dealing with um, these things in in your life. I want you to know, um, first of all, that um, the Lord is near to you mm-hmm. in this situation. Um, he feels the hurt. He feels the violation. He has not just felt that, but he has carried that to the cross not just the sin that your spouse is committing, but also your sense of shame in and of yourself or your sense of inadequacy. He will help you carry that. Also just want to say as well that this is not your fault. You know, whatever sexual dysfunction there may be in your marriage is the result of two broken people in this relationship. Most men I know who struggle in this area, it's not because their wife is sexually unavailable or unattractive, even, you know, to their spouse. This is not your fault. It's not the the result of your inadequacy. This is your husband's sin. This is your spouse's sin. And so I think the Holy Spirit, which has not given us a spirit of fear, can be near to you. You can trust that the Lord wants good for your marriage and will equip and empower you to love your husband, to love your wife in the ways that sacrifice requires because he is near to the brokenhearted and he is near to the contrite in spirit as well. So, yeah, just it occurred to me that maybe to make that so it's not just an academic response to an academic question, but somebody's listening going, this is my life right now. I thought maybe, maybe a brief word. Luke on Twitter this is your question, man. Uh, this is a good question. I'm really eager because you, you brought it to the table. I, I, I somehow missed this. I'm, I apologize to you, Luke. But Ross picked it up. Luke wants to know, what is the kindest and clearest way in preaching in particular to refer to people who may be present or just who may not be present, but to refer to people who are not Christian? Yeah. What do you call them? What do you call 
non-Christians? Do you yeah. call them non-Christians? Do so, you call them unbelievers? Do so you call, reason, what do you call yeah, them? Yeah, the reason I pulled this seekers? up is because it is Christian and non-Christian. Like that's that's how we Yeah, you don't like that dichotomy, I, Christian I, and non-Christian. I personally don't like that in a sermon. Okay. I think it's fine to define people as that, but in okay. a sermon, I'm not keen on that. And I do have a kind of reason behind it. It's not because I dislike the phraseology or the phraseology is incorrect. Yeah. It's because if you are preaching, you're before people, you assume in regular preaching that you know. So to say Christian in the room, well, look out the room. You know them. They're your church members. And it's brothers and sisters. It's family members. It's older. It's younger. It's people you've walked life with, people that you've just become members, just baptized. To just lump them in Christian, I struggle with that because it, it kind of, it loses a sense of connection. It loses a sense of who they are to you and who they are in this church. So the over bracket of just Christian, yeah. uh, I just lose this, that familiarity with them. Then this bracket of non-Christian. Well, sometimes non-Christians don't believe they're non-Christians. So there's one issue. Mm. Second, you should also know when you look out at your room, if you don't recognize faces. So I'm, I'm a believer in more things like um, going along the lines. If, if you're part of the family in this church and, and you love and know Jesus, you know, yeah, you, yeah. it's a bit more familial. And actually, as I look out today, I'm, I'm seeing some unfamiliar faces. I don't know if you've come to Christ yet, if you know him and love him yet, and um, whether you're a believer or you're not. And uh, this is something I want you to know. It, it pulls people yeah, in yeah. to the sermon and to just... I personally believe it's a bit of a cop out to just go Christian, non-Christian. And I hear it loads. And I just, I would counsel to real people are before you. Don't just stick them in two brackets. Okay. Is there any concern about it being somewhat offensive or turn no, off? Like, no, okay. I'm, I'm not talking. Believe, what about like a believer versus unbeliever? Yeah. If you're, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, See, is I, that, that's, I almost feel like that's, uh, it's a correct category. Yes. But you're now addressing someone who doesn't believe you want to use language, not that is dishonest, but yeah. is that an unnecessary stiff arm? You're an unbeliever. Yeah, no, know? I, and I, I'm, I, like, hear me, I, I'm not saying that any of these phrases shouldn't be used. I'm yeah. just saying that actually, if you are regularly preaching and you are in that church building, you don't need to go to overarching kind of brackets. You can bring a much more personal, and if I would, I would argue, tangible reality you know um if if you're in this room and i recognize this i don't recognize some faces i don't know if you know jesus personally i don't know if you've come to a point where you truly believe in him as your savior i don't know if you will even refer to yourself as a non-christian or a christian so because i don't know that here's something i, I really want you to know and kind of present the gospel I think just going, hey, for the non-Christians in the room, I want to say to you, and who is that? And if you don't know who they are, I wonder about whether you know your church or not. So I think it just, there's a lot behind this, and I don't think it's... I, I mean, that I, assumes, I mean, what if it's a pretty large church? I mean, the one guy preaching may not know everybody in well, then, the room. I, but you, know? you can even say that. It's a large church I'm visiting today. I don't know everybody in the room. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure that there's somebody here that's struggling with with doubts about Jesus. Or, yeah, yeah. or maybe you're just at a flat out, I don't believe this yet. So again, you're just pulling people in. And if you go to an environment and it's just believer, unbeliever, Christian, non-Christian, which is true, it just loses the the sensitivity, the the pulling in, the 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 winsome way of talking about Christ, and 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 so I'm just a, more of a fan of those phrases in your head. Great, fine. There's nothing wrong with them. I think there's better ways at addressing people. So you're approaching a phraseology. Is there a label that you would think is kind and clear? Like what's the least or what's the most kind, most clear label? So I don't think non-Christian so non is, is as clear as it could be. Okay. I think unbeliever is getting close, but you're still okay. going to have to have a phrase, unbeliever, as in you don't believe something. Yeah. What is it you don't believe? I, I don't think there is a one particular word that that beats the kind of phraseology of kind of pulling people in with a, a, a phrase or a, yeah. or a line. We used to say, I mean, the word used to be seeker. Yeah. That's fallen out of the favor. Even among those churches, yeah. that would be secret churches. Among churches like ours, you always have kind of the Theo bro that'd be like, there is no one who seeks God, man. Yes. You know, only God is the seeker. He's the one who seeks and saves, right? I'm like, <laughs> well, but we know what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. 
I, I, I don't use the word seeker, so this is not me trying to defend, you know, the overuse of it, but I'm somewhat sympathetic to it. And because if, if there's somebody in the room You're seeking and they're something. not a believer, yeah. so it's not like just some random non-Christian yeah. that you've, you know, at the bus stop, yeah. uh, but they're in the room. If they're not a believer, there's some seeking, you know, yeah. on the natural level, right? Maybe you can call them seeker. I, yeah. I don't. I don't know. He, here's what I would say is you can say in a sermon, you know, there's non-Christians who believe this or there's Christians that believe this. But when you're getting down to that kind of gospel presentation where you're kind of trying to really pull people in, you kind of want to, for those that are walking with Jesus and you have known the sweet relationship that is to be a child of God, remember the gospels for you. If you don't know that, if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't come to belief in Christ yet, you, you're, you're, you're kind of trying to pull on that rope, pulling them towards the message. Where if you just go, hey, non-Christian, this is for you, it just feels like a bit of a brick wall. Yeah. You know, this actually touches on one of my, I'm going to call it a pet peeve, because <laughs> we, we, we both used this phrase numerous times as we were giving our answer. The phrase when you're preaching, if you're here today or if you're in this room. <laughs> well, they if are. You're, if you're, li- you know, um, you don't have to say that. No. And I've done it before myself. Like, that's not necessary. So if you say, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, no, just say, if you're not a believer. Yeah. Because the people who are here <laughs> will hear what you're saying. You don't need to say, if you're here. We're here. Right? I'm so it's, it's, it's a redundant phrase now. I'm nervous to write my next sermon now. <laughs> if you're here this morning, hey, we're here this morning. You don't, you don't have to say that. <laughs> just say what you're going to say. Just say, you know, you haven't followed Jesus. If yeah. you haven't followed Jesus yet, you need to, you know. Uh, anyway, that's just right. <laughs> well, if you're listening to this, <laughs> dear listener, and you are, or else you wouldn't hear me saying it, so it's a redundant phrase. If you're listening to this and you enjoy what you hear, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And next time I put a call out for questions, answer the phone. Put some good questions up on the social media so we can answer your good questions. Please leave a review so he doesn't complain again. <laughs> leave a good review so or a bad review so I don't complain about reviews either. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.